Heavenly Father, we come before your word today, a word which, is, uh, which are words that we sometimes like to avoid. Uh, these are the, the heavy words uh, that we just find sometimes easy just to not think about and not talk about. And but in your love and in your mercy, uh, you reveal to us these plain and hard truths in order that we might see reality for what it is and we might be ready. Uh, this morning as we come before your word of uh, judgment and a picture of hell that's to come, we pray that it might shock us not uh, to repulsion, but shock us in order for us to seek after the refuge that can only be found in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the first uh, meals I had with my future in-laws, so Faith and I dated, there wasn't actually much time to have meals. We dated for such a short time that there was only a few meals between when we first met and we got married. But one of the first meals we had was at a Chinese restaurant, I think in Carlingford in Sydney. And it was one of those typical uh, Hong Kong restaurants. And uh, they, they have uh, the menus, right, uh, with uh, you know, pictures of the food. And we were thinking about ordering fish because uh, who doesn't like eating a whole fish when you go to a Chinese restaurant, right? So, you know, whole fish... Uh, sweet and sour pomfret or something, right? Sitting on a plate, gloriously crispy. Uh, the tail, I love the tail. You know, you can crunch, eat the whole thing. And the head, the cheek, right? The cheek of the fish is the most glorious part of the fish to eat. Yeah, hear the nodding, right? Uh, I don't do eyes. Some people like to suck the eyes, but, but not me. We're gonna, about to order this fish, and then we couldn't, right? We couldn't. Because my future sister-in-law, uh, she couldn't really bear the sight of seeing an animal's head on a plate. Right, it became too real uh, that she was uh, eating something that had been killed. Right, seeing a head on a plate uh, was just too real to deal. Now we live in a world that largely avoids dealing with the topic of death, don't we? Um, we use all these euphemisms uh, for death. We we won't say someone died. We usually say someone passed away or passed on. Or, or more so, maybe some people say, you know, they've gone upstairs. Right, they've gone upstairs. They've gone to a better place, or they've gone to be with the angels. You know, especially among our non-Christian friends, they like to talk about that, right? a better place, going to be with the angels. Our world avoids talking about what will happen uh, to every single one of us. Even though death is what happens to every single living organism, uh, we just don't like using that word and don't like talking about it. And even when we do talk about it, we assume the best. Uh, no one really talks about how we will go to hell. Uh, everyone will say we'll go to a better place. Whether you believe in the afterlife or not, non-Christians, our world, will assume that we go to somewhere better, right? Now, to say otherwise, to try to imply that there might be something other than a better place uh, is to be offensive, right? It's to be unloving. Uh, how can you talk like that? Right? Now, I wonder when was the last time that you spoke to an unbelieving family or friend about death, uh, about judgment, and about the realities of heaven and hell? When's the last time you did that? I think most of us uh, would simply avoid the topic. If we did discuss the topic, I'm sure that you felt deeply uncomfortable, and they probably felt deeply uncomfortable. Or... They simply didn't care, right? They simply don't believe. They just uh, uh, reject any possibility of the reality of future judgment, heaven or hell. 
But God's word doesn't allow us to do that, right? God's word tells us that death and judgment and hell is real. It's not just a myth. It's not just some elaborate scare tactic to believe in something. It's real and it's no joke, right? It's real and it's no joke. Now, the past 11 chapters of Isaiah, if you heard last week, judgment was the big theme, isn't it, of the last 11 chapters. And in fact, it has been since the beginning of the book. Uh, I sent out to the music team the, the big idea for the week, and Ivan replied, what, judgment again? Right, was kind of his reply, right? And I'm like, yes, judgment again, um, until at least to the end of chapter 39. Right, chapter 40, verse 1 is when the book turns. But judgment is the big theme right, of these four chapters. But actually, it isn't the biggest theme. I, I, I should have told Ivan that, yes, judgment is a big theme of these four chapters, but if you read it carefully... Three of the four chapters are actually about hope. Now, chapter 24 is about judgment, but the dominant theme is actually the hope of salvation. But it's the reality and the horror of judgment that drives us to find cover, right? to seek refuge for where there is hope and salvation and life. Now, in these four chapters, final judgment and hope, right? final judgment and hope are presented to us as being tied up in two cities, right? two cities. One is kind of this earth, this world city that we've been looking at. And the other is the mountain city of God, right? Zion, as we've heard in previous chapters of Isaiah. Judgment will fall on this world city, but hope will be found and only be found in God's mountain city. So let's look at these two cities, right? The first one uh, is this place called the wasted city, right? God, God from verse uh, 10 of chapter 24. Now, who, who will face God's final judgment? Have a look at chapter 24, verse 1 to 3. Right? Open to chapter 24, verse 1 to 3. Uh, as you scan down through these three verses, who will face God's final judgment? Well, if you look at it, it's clear, isn't it? That judgment will fall on everyone, right? all the inhabitants of the earth. And then to list it out for us, right? the, the people and the priests, the religious followers and the religious leaders, the slave and the master, the maid and the mistress, those low on the socioeconomic ladder and those who have made it in life, uh, the buyer and the seller, the lender and the borrower, those in trade, those in business, right? In all aspects of life, religious, socioeconomic, trade, commerce, it doesn't matter who you are or what you are in this world, judgment is going to fall on every single person on the earth. He's going to empty the earth uh, of all its people and God will twist the surface of this earth and scatter it. When you can imagine this picture, it's kind of like God taking out the trash, right? And dumping it into the wheelie bin and then giving it a good shake. It's a confronting image that we are just like trash in a dustbin being shaken out and emptied, every single one of us. Now, if you've been around for the last couple of weeks, you will know why, right? You'll know why. Isaiah has reminded us again and again what many of us already know, that everyone stands guilty before God. Have a look at verse 5. Chapter 24, verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Now, one of the worst crimes uh, that we can be charged in, are charged off in this world, is kind of crimes against humanity. No, that's not it. That's not crime. Yeah, that's right. Crimes against humanity, right? Uh, crimes against humanity are crimes that are kind of a widespread and systematic attack against our fellow human beings. 
right? The Holocaust and, and, and human slave trading and all kind of stuff, right? Those are kind of like the, 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 the most gross and grievous sins that we can be charged of in our world. But what is even worse than crimes against humanity is crimes against God. Right? Crimes against God. A widespread and systematic attack against our Creator. Not just against creation, but against Creator. Now, why is it that crimes against God are so much worse than these widespread crimes against humanity? Why is it the worst crime of all? Now, I want you to imagine with me for a second that you're walking along in a park, right? So, maybe not today, it's a bit too wet, but let's assume a glorious day like yesterday morning, right? You're walking around Guyatt Park or Perrin Park, and you see someone, right, maybe a teenage boy, right, on a bench, very intently looking into his hands. And you, walk, you come up and you're going, what's he looking at? And then you see this boy is plucking legs of a cockroach, right, plucking legs of a cockroach. How would you respond? Some of you would freak out, right? You'd scream. Uh, but you probably wouldn't do too much. You probably think, oh, the boy's a bit weird, but it's a teenager for you, and you walk away, right? Now, what if when you peered closely and you saw that the boy was actually plucking legs off a tree frog? I like tree frogs. I hate cane toads, but tree frogs, they're, they're kind of cute, and they're kind of endangered. You'd be a bit more worried, right? There's something not quite right about this boy. It's cruel, but maybe you think, well... It's just a frog. And if you're Asian, you kind of think frog legs. <laughs> okay? So maybe you wouldn't be too, too concerned, too disturbed. But what if the boy was plucking legs of a puppy? What would you do then? I do believe that's a crime. Is that right? Any animal lovers out there? You would probably want to call the cops. There's something really deranged about a boy pulling off legs of a puppy, right? You would probably do something, wouldn't you? But what if it was a human body? What if it was a human baby? And there's no put any pictures in there. You don't need to see a picture of a human baby up on the screen. We all know what babies are. What if you see some teenage monster pulling a leg of a human baby? What would you do? What you would do is you would just dive in there, wouldn't you? You would probably wrestle this deranged boy to the ground and save this child, right? Now, what prompts us to act so differently, react so differently to each of these cases? Uh, it's the one that's being sinned against, isn't it? it? It's who the harm is being done against. Cockroach, no big deal, right? We, we swap flies every day. Frog, puppy, human baby. It's the value of the one being sinned against that matters. The, most valuable, the more valuable the creature, the more serious the crime. So the question is, how valuable is God? How valuable is God? He is definitely no cockroach, that's for sure. He is infinitely of value, isn't he? He is the everlasting one, the almighty, the one perfect in love, goodness, and truth, impeccably holy and just, he is our creator. How serious is it to sin against him? How serious is that crime? How serious is it, as Isaiah put it, to break his everlasting covenant? Now, what is this everlasting covenant that God has formed with us? It's almost certainly the relationship that God has with us as our creator and we as his creation. Right? There's this bond that God created for us to have, this covenant 
right? This contract, this relationship, um, this relationship that God created for us to have that's, that, that binds us with rules to obey and responsibilities to fulfill as his created children, people, as well as promises and pr- privileges to enjoy, right? There's, there's rules and responsibilities that bind our relationship, this covenant, but there's also promises and privileges to enjoy. But we have failed so miserably in this covenant, right from the very beginning, and for every single human inhabitant on this earth, we have failed so miserably. Now some live as if there is no covenant at all. There is no connection. There is no covenant with God. But there are others who do acknowledge this covenant, like we do maybe, right? Like God's people did in the Old Testament. But we are so consistently unfaithful to God. We are rule breakers, we shirk our responsibilities, we doubt his promises, and we abuse our God-given privileges. It's not hard to see why everyone stands guilty before God as covenant breakers. And Isaiah is saying that everyone is guilty of crimes against God, and there is no greater crime than that. Now, it's in the face of this reality that we are struck then with the horror of God's judgment. In the face of this reality of crimes against God, that we're struck with the horror of God's judgment. Now, what is the judgment for our sins? Right? What is the punishment for our crimes? Now, this is the part of the week where I was preparing, which I really didn't want to prepare, and I really want to preach on this topic. I don't even want to think about it. Right? I spent a lot of time this week reading about judgment and hell, uh, and it's not something that I would really want to do normally. Uh, And there were moments of deep and dark dread that I haven't felt in a long time, especially in light of my aunt's death, right? It's not something that I really wanted to think about. But it it was really helpful during the week that that I was reminded over and over again in the things that I read that we read about hell and judgment in a context that God takes no pleasure, no pleasure at all, to bring judgment down on sinners. I was reminded of this passage from Ezekiel. I want to read with you guys, right? It's a way to uh, prepare us for hearing this message. God says in another, through another prophet, Ezekiel, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I, this is God speaking, have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. God's desire is for us to turn and live. Right? That's the attitude, okay? right? As we hear this sort of heavy word of judgment, he takes no pleasure in judging us. He wants us to listen to this word in order that we might turn and live. See, as, good and as, ju- as a good God, God wants us to be saved but he is also a just God and he must judge. Can you imagine a judge letting that boy who plucked the leg off a puppy go free? Can you imagine a just judge just acquitting a person who pulls the legs off a human baby? Can you imagine what God would have to do for our crimes against him? And so judgment must fall. Now God's judgment is pictured in our passage today as a destruction and as a desolation, right? as a destruction, and as a desolation. Now, firstly, that's destruction. Now, what is being destroyed? 
Well, it's just this world, right? This, this, this world city uh, that, that, we, that we've, we've seen in this passage. It's, it's this, this world that we live in, right? In verse 1 and in verse 3, we see that this world, this earth, will be emptied of all of its trash. And in verse 10, if you look down at chapter 24, verse 10, this city will be called the wasted city. It will be broken down. It will be shut down, right? Verse 19, this earth will be utterly broken, spit apart, and violently shaken. And then chapter 25, verse 2, it will be the ruined city, a city that will never be rebuilt. Right? This world that we call home, that we don't just live in, but that we so sinfully live for, will be destroyed. And our lives in this world will also be destroyed. And as for us, what is our future? What is the future for the guilty of the sinners? Well, verse 22, right? verse 22, the end of chapter 24 they will be gathered up as prisoners and then punished. We will face a destruction, not to be annihilated, but a destruction of punishment. And this punishment is one of desolation. Right, desolation. Now, desolation can mean destruction, but it can also mean sort of the experience of a great sadness, a real darkness. And I think it means both here, doesn't it? There's a punishment of destruction that is so deeply sad and dark. It's a picture of hell, really, what we see in these verses. In chapter, seven, uh, chapter 24, verse 7 to 12, it, it, it's a picture of hell, of utmost desolation. Let me read it to us. Verse 7. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is still. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. It's a picture of a party that comes to an end, isn't it? A picture of a party that comes to an end. All that is bright and joyful and happy is taken away. It's banished. Now, my oldest friend in the entire world is Corey. I, I didn't keep any of my friends from when I was in Singapore when I came over when I was 11. Uh, I tried to contact them. They were too busy, right, living the Singaporean life to be friends with me. So I made a new friend in Australia, Corey. Many of you might have heard of him. I've spoken about him over the years. I've been evangelizing to Corey since 1990, right? 28 years, uh, and still going. I've known each other a long time, and uh, we've talked about the gospel and about Christian things many times. And one of the things that we discuss over the years is the topic of the afterlife. And Corey isn't worried about hell, right? Corey isn't worried about hell. In fact, Corey is very keen to get to hell uh, because he thinks of it as an eternity of babes, and boobs and booze, right? That's, his kind of, that's my PG version of what he says. Uh, it's an eternity of friends and frivolous fun, right? It's a picture of hell for him. He said to me, why would I want to go to heaven when I can enjoy all these prohibitions in hell? Anyone ever said that to you before? Or maybe it's just Corey with a no filter uh, speaking. Uh, and I just couldn't convince him, right, of what is so clearly taught to us in this passage. 
that there is simply no joy or pleasure in hell. Now, you may drink booze in hell. Maybe there is beer in hell. But it, it won't give you any happiness at all. Any of the high that you might feel from drinking wine or beer, you won't get. You might have a $75,000 bottle of McKellen 1927. Right? I had to Google this because I don't drink whiskey. You might have it, but it will taste like ash. It might taste like Baal in, in, in hell. Maybe there is sex in hell. I don't know. But there will be no pleasure from that activity. That's what we're being told here. That's what desolation means. There is no joy and there is no pleasure. Because God is the source of all that is good and joyful and pleasurable. Now, in our broken world, even though it's sinful, God is still present. And by His common grace, sinners and righteous alike get to enjoy the pleasures of this life. But in hell, God says, no, right? I will remove my presence from that place and there will be nothing good there. It's the place of desolation where joy grows dark. And for some reason, because I've been watching all these kids' movies with my kids recently, it brought to mind the picture of Trolls, the movie. Everyone watch Trolls? Remember the scene? Those trolls are these colorful creatures, right? Uh, that have this like, psychedelic color hair and body. But when they're about to be eaten by the Bergmans and they lost all hope, they become desolate and the color drains from them. Uh, and I kind of acted like I was, uh, had an allergy and I was sniffling, you know. They didn't want to show my kids. But it was such a, a picture, a sad picture of joy growing dark, right? That reminded me of this passage, or this passage reminded me of that movie. The destruction of this world and the desolation of hell is the unavoidable judgment of those who have sinned against God. It's the unavoidable reality that we must all face. As you read on in the second half of Isaiah 24, you'll see, right, someone would try to flee from destruction and fall into a pit. It's unavoidable. And God, by His grace and mercy, wants us to know this. But the amazing thing about all this is that it's not the only reality, it's not the only possible reality that God has for us. I'm so very glad to be able to say that, right? That chapter 24 is not God's final word. Judgment and hell is not the only possible future for the inhabitants of this earth. Now, in our reading of chapter 24, I'm not sure if you noticed it, right in the middle there, in verse 13 and 14, two very surprising verses. But if you glance at it quickly, it's like a ray of light that kind of bursts through the clouds, right? You know, you've been on those cloudy days where the light shines for a second and it disappears again, right? Right in the middle there, there's this group of people who are singing joyfully. That's kind of weird. Chapter 24, so dark, so depressing. There's a group of people singing joyfully, glorifying, praising God. It isn't until we get to chapter 25 that we see why there's a small group that can do this, right? Chapter 25. We get to see hope shine brightly here. There's another city, right? The wasted city, chapter 24. But we get to see another city. It's a city on God's mountain, a place of refuge for the coming destruction and desolation. Pick it up from verse 1. Chapter 25, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, a fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. 
Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the, of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. And so we're reminded that even though judgment will fall on this world's city, there is a refuge that is to be found in God. And it's those who are poor and who are needy, who, who recognize their need, who would run to find this refuge in God and find refuge in this stronghold city that God provides. They cling on, right? For God to be their stronghold, a shelter in the storm, a shade from the heat of these fires of judgment that is coming upon this earth. We see in these verses that God has power both to destroy and to save from destruction. This glorious truth, amazingly, we recognize even by those who are being destroyed, the strong peoples, right? The ruthless who are being judged, they will even be the ones that will glorify God for his power both to judge and to save. But this salvation is found in this mountain city. Verse verse 6, right? On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. It's amazing, isn't it? On this mountain of God, the experience of life is the complete opposite uh, of, of desolation, of judgment and hell. It's the complete opposite. A feast of rich food and well-aged wine, right? That $75,000 bottle of McKellen 1927 will taste exactly like it should. What that tastes like, I got no idea, right? Can't afford it, okay? But if you're a, if you're a foodie, it's saying here that everything will taste better than you can ever imagine. You know what's in heaven? Soup tulang. All right, so sorry, it's, it's bone marrow soup, right? When you drink the soup through the bone marrow of a beef bone or a mutton bone, right? Uh, maybe if you're more Aussie, maybe it's a ribeye on the bone, right? That'll be there in heaven in all of its glory. Life in God's city is not desolation, but celebration. Right? Not desolation, but celebration. Not, not joy growing dark but joy overflowing. But there's more, isn't it? Not only will there be no desolation, there will be no destruction either. Verse 7 and 8. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Right, this world city is, is covered under the, the pall of death and destruction. Where this world is like rubbish ready to be thrown out. So broken and destroyed that it is. Well, this new world city, this mountain city, this refuge of God, is a place where God swallows up death. God swallows up all the tears and all the shame, all the guilt that causes such brokenness in our world, that causes our physical death, that causes our spiritual death of being separated from God 
That is all taken away in this mountain city of God. Now we all know, this sounds very familiar, doesn't it? We all know how God achieves this. We know where this mountain is. Or more accurately, we know who this mountain of God is. We know who is the one who provides us refuge and shelter from the storms of judgment. It is Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ allows Paul to declare these famous words that sound just like Isaiah 25, verse 8, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know how God fulfills his promises in Isaiah 25. It is Jesus who gives us refuge from death and victory over death. Physical death, well, it's just sleep that we will wake up from. Spiritual death, not anymore. For in Christ we are raised to life. He is the one who secures our eternal blessing of God's presence and goodness and every joy that comes with having God forever. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that refuge is, Christ, is found in Christ alone. To come to Christ is to come to God's mountain city. That's what Isaiah looked forward to. Now the question then is, who can enter? Right? Who can enter this mountain? Who does God invite in? Now have a look. Chapter 26, right? 26. We're moving through these four chapters quickly, right? Verse 1 and 2 in chapter 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. It's amazing, isn't it? As much as the nations have been rightly and justly condemned, when the Bible, when the Old Testament talks about nations, it's talking about the world around, right? <clears throat> All those sinful cities that have been judged in the last 11 chapters. Even they, God desires for them to come in. God commands that the gates be flung open, that they may pour in. Now flip then to the end of chapter 27, right? End of 27, verse 12 and 13. And hear what else God says, who will come in. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who are driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. You hear that? Even sinful Israel, right, rebellious and worthless as they were, right? The, the, the emphasis of judgment in chapters 1 to 11, even Israel will be welcomed back. God will blow his trumpet and he will gather back his scattered people. He'll say to them, return home, enter into my city, right? The, the Judah that should have been, the heavenly Mount Zion. Let me establish you as my people again. Let me restore you to the joy and privilege of worship. And so we see in chapter 26 and 27, kind of bookending it, is the welcome of the nations and the welcome of Israel. The people who are the very recipients of the judgment of chapter 1 to 23 are the very ones who most need to hear this offer of return. 
It's amazing, isn't it? In God's grace and mercy, to every single person who needs mercy, God offers it. The gates are being found open wide to, to welcome back the very ones who have left, who have sinned and committed crimes against God. For every single person facing the horrific reality of destruction and desolation, God offers the remarkable alternative of salvation and joy. That is the God that we see in Scriptures. But you see, God's offer of salvation requires a response. Right? This offer needs to be received. Now have a look again at verse 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 2. Now what does it say about those who can come in? Right? 26, verse 2. Uh, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an uh, everlasting rock. What are the key words here? Well, the key words here are the same key words as the entire Bible about what it means to receive God's offer of salvation. And the word is faith, isn't it? Or trust. Now, in English, we have, the same, we have two words that sound very different, but they're very similar, almost the same, right? Faith or trust. The gates into God's city of refuge is open to those who keep faith, to those who trust in God, to those who trust in God forever. Now, for us, we know what it means to trust in God. It's to trust in the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ makes it even clearer what it means to trust in God. You see, we know that we trust God by believing that God offers salvation only through Christ. That's how we trust God, because we believe it when he tells us the gospel is the only way of salvation. We trust God when he tells us that we are unrighteous, that we can only be made righteous, we can be made into that righteous nation only through Christ alone. That's how we trust God. Now, if you're not a believer here this morning, can, can I ask you, will you trust what God says? Will you trust what God says? Will you trust God's word that final judgment and hell is real and it's terrible? Because if you do trust God's word about judgment and hell, then you can certainly trust him about salvation and refuge. If you can trust God's word about judgment and hell, you can certainly trust him about salvation and refuge that is found in Christ. Well, can I invite you to seriously consider putting your trust in Jesus Christ as your refuge? If you haven't done that yet, can I, can I urge you to seriously consider doing so? For judgment and hell is real, but so is salvation found in Christ. Now, if you are a believer here this morning, then let me urge you to trust in the Lord Jesus forever. I trust in the Lord Jesus forever. But trusting in the Lord Jesus forever requires trusting in Jesus every day, right? Trusting in Jesus forever requires a daily trust in Jesus, a faithful waiting, right? In the words of Isaiah, isn't it? Have a look at back again, back in chapter 25, verse 9. Uh, 25, verse 9. Isaiah says, right, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Right? Uh, Isaiah has just showed us right, that 
that, that heaven is real. It's a place where there is no desolation but celebration, no destruction but resurrection. And it says, wait for the salvation to come. He has to say this because the track record for God's people in the Old Testament is that they suck at waiting. Right? Everyone know the story of Abraham? God promised Abraham that he will give him a son and just to wait. And he couldn't wait. So he made a baby with his uh, servant, Bill Hagar. And then fast forward to the time of the Exodus. Moses went up the mountain to receive the commandments from God. And the people of God couldn't wait for more than 40 days. And what did they do in those 40 days? They thought, well, I'll grab everyone's gold jewelry, melt it down, and create a calf to worship. And say, he is the one, or it is the one that saved us out of Israel. Israel's track record for waiting sucks. What about us? And for those who believe in Jesus, what is our waiting like? As we wait in this world's city, how much of our waiting is faithless? How much do we not just live in this world's city that what we become like it, that we chase after, that we get so distracted and so enamored by what this world offers, this world that's going to be destroyed offers, that we fail to wait patiently for salvation that is to come. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to wane in our trust when we have to wait. Just waiting for our shopping to arrive by mail, right? waiting to go and see a doctor in the surgery, waiting in the traffic. We, 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 we are just terrible at waiting. Right? We want instant gratification. Whatever seems to be best for us now is what we grasp onto. But God tells us that what is best to grasp onto is the salvation that is to come, secured by the salvation that has been already secured for us through Jesus. And so Isaiah says, let us be glad and rejoice in salvation. How do we wait well? Well, every day be glad. Every day rejoice in salvation. Find ways to see the the joy of Jesus more than the joys of this world. You know, that's a, a thing we do with our children, isn't it? We say to them, you can have an entire piece of birthday cake at the end of the party, or you can have one lolly now. I wish I would you prefer, right? We're trying to teach them that something better will come if you wait. But like children, sometimes we go for the little lolly when we can have the cake. We go for the world's pleasure that will become desolate. Right, and go for the joy eternal of having God, having Jesus, having eternal life. And it just gets harder when we face opposition, doesn't it? When life gets hard. And that's why we read 2 Peter 3. I won't go through 2 Peter 3 too much. Have a study of that your own. But let me just read a couple of verses. In a time when there is difficulties, and it's even harder to hold on waiting faithfully. Right, knowing this, first of all, sorry, That scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's hard enough to wait when things are easy. 
But it is definitely a challenge when we're faced with opposition and hardships, isn't it? And God's word tells us this morning to wait with gladness, to rejoice in salvation. This fuels our faithful waiting. It reminds us of what we have already been given and what is to come. But it also reminds us that not everyone can wait like we do. That not everyone has this certainty of salvation. Which brings us to our final point of response for this morning. Now our faith in Jesus Christ is expressed in firm belief in God's future. Right? We believe what God says about death, judgment, and hell. And if these things are real, we show, our belief that we, we show that we believe this is real when we want to warn people who don't know about this. I say that again, we, we, we show our trust in God that death and judgment and hell is real by the fact that we want to warn people who don't know about this. Can we see that? Because we, we don't want to tell people and warn people about these things, then either you don't believe it's coming, and you don't believe it's horrible, or you don't care enough for people to tell them what's going to happen to them. Now, I like to think that it's not just all black and white, there's a spectrum. But I've got to put it starkly, right? It's either you don't believe death and judgment and hell is real, or you don't care about people who will face what you believe to be true. Okay? Now, the magician and atheist uh, Penn Gillette, of Penn and Teller fame, he said this, right? Pretty famous quote from uh, Penn. He's an atheist, non-Christian guy, right? If you believe that... Uh, sorry, let me just start with the first line before I say that. So I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, right? I don't get, it's not that quote. I, don't, oh, I always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Proselytize is another way of saying evangelize. Uh, I don't respect that at all, right? This is what he says. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? And then he carries on and says, I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this, evangelizing, is more important than that. An atheist said this, right, about the logical inference, consequence of believing that this is true. Why would you not tell someone about it? Because the question then we have to left with is, do we believe in judgment? Is heaven and hell for real? Because God says that it is. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, do I believe that? And if we do believe that, then talk about it with our family and friends. Do it lovely, lovingly, of course, of course, and wisely and sensitively. And even with great fear and dread, which you should have. It is not a fun topic to talk about. But do it. I do what my mom did, right? Fly home if you have to. 
right, to be able to share this news. Whatever it takes, find ways to do it. Because judgment is coming, <clears throat> and it will be horrible. I warned my mom about this sermon today, and I think maybe that's why she's not here, right? I wish I could share with you what she texted me while she was back in Malaysia about her grief at my aunt. Now, we live in a world that desperately avoids talking about death. We all assume that we're all going to end up in a better place. People say that we're not loving if we talk about these things. But I think, and I hope you agree with me, that it's the most loving thing that we can do. Our judgment and hell is real, but so is salvation and blessing. We have a message that can give real hope to people. Please share it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you now. You know what our hearts are feeling now. We know what our minds are thinking. Whether it is those here who are still seeking and are maybe uh, aghast and recoiling at this message of judgment and hell, or whether it's peaked something uh, in them, a fear of the judgment that is to come, and, and wondering whether it is true, and wondering whether it's worth believing in Jesus, or whether it is those who have believed in Jesus who know the realities of, of death and judgment and hell that is to come, and wondering about whether we do care enough for people to want to share. You know what is going through our minds and hearts, and we pray that you will speak to us wherever we are. There is those who are still seeking after you, that they might find you, that your spirit might open their eyes and their hearts to see the truth of your word, to see that as horrific as your judgment and the hell that is to come is, to be able to see that the amazing grace and mercy and blessing of salvation and joy that it can be found in Jesus. For those of us who do believe, and are feeling the burden of our lost family and friends, and maybe even feeling incredibly sad about those we know and love who have gone already, we pray that you minister to us, that you help us firstly to wait faithfully, holding on to Jesus, but that you also help us to faithfully warn our family and friends, fill us with the love that cares for people, Fill us with wisdom to know how to bring this such difficult topic up. Pray for us to know how to exude the joy and hope of salvation in Christ. Please help us, we pray. In Jesus' name.